Dude, I see a picture of you wearing a suit. Yeah, I've been known to occasionally wear a suit. I'm sorry. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to widgmo.com and check them out. Don't panic, be for most of hey everybody, and welcome to episode 92 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Joe Eames. Hey there. Aaron Frost. Hello. Jameson Dance. Howdy, folks. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have two guests, Valery Karpov. Hey guys, what's up? And Ward Bell. Hello, everybody. Chuck, aren't you going to check that you pronounced Ward Bell correctly? <laughs> Ward, how do you say your name? I say it's a, a Ward the Bell. <laughs> Grazie mille. <laughs> All right, so uh, we we brought you on to talk about mean development or mean the mean stack or whatever you I guess they call it a couple of different things I've seen. So mean stands for MongoDB, ExpressJS, AngularJS, and Node.js. So what what is it about this particular stack that is so uh, appealing? Besides the acronym. Yeah, the acronym what, is very pithy, and I kind of credit the acronym for giving it a lot of uh, a lot of its buzz. You should have called it <laughs> but, Amen, Amen Stack. People actually have suggested that, but on the other hand, I don't know. I don't think Amen would be as pithy. <laughs> I do. Mead has a little bit of attitude to it, and I kind of like that. But and you know, we we threw a B in front of it to put breeze on it, so we can call it B Mean. Yeah, there's also means with sales. Couple of a uh, couple of other spinoffs that I've heard. It's <laughs> oh man, it's fun. When I did the Google but, search, it came back with Mean Girls. So. <laughs> oh man, uh, that's that's an SEO fail. Yeah, <laughs> need to work on that. Well, that's what you get when you just Google Mean instead of Mean Stack or Mean anyway. Have we said what it what it stands for? Because there are other people poaching on it too. Am I looking at the wrong mean? I said Mongo Express, Angular, and Node. Ah, but I just saw somebody do one where they substituted MySQL for the M, so I thought we should say it explicitly. Uh, uh, I, I, I just want to apologize people for their own lives if they're using MySQL. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. 2006 called wants its technology back. Oh, man. Yeah, uh, well, I bet not it, to hate it, too much on MySQL. It's a, it, well, it has uses, but I mean, pun intended. Uh, right now, I, I definitely think that MongoDB is sort of the better general purpose database out of, you know, the M's, MySQL or MongoDB. Again, the thing that I really, that really got me onto MongoDB just to, just getting started right off the bat was, you know, there are plenty of other database products that I had used and none of them were just quite as simple and intuitive to me as MongoDB. I mean, what I want to do with a database, I want to be able to go in, I want to store something, and then I want to be able to query for it by whatever I just inserted. And with MongoDB, it was just like, oh, okay, I just downloaded a tarball, I unzipped it, I ran a, I ran a program, and all of a sudden now I can start inserting things. I haven't had to go set up a table, I haven't had to install anything. 
it just it kind of just let me get started and basically got out of my way, which is kind of the mark of the just the mark of the best products, I think. Yeah, I, I I tell people I have clients come to me and they're like, so I keep hearing about this NoSQL thing, and since my product is going to have a million and a half users on it, I need to use MySQL. And, you know, sometimes MySQL lends itself very well to their problem, and sometimes it, you know, it seems like a relational approach would work better. Of course, then I put them on Postgres. But I, I think it, it really just depends on your problem domain. I think in a lot of cases it doesn't matter because you're just putting stuff in and pulling it out. But, yeah, I, I think there's a place for both paradigms, and it just it just really comes down to what you need and what you're familiar with. That's your answer to everything, though, Chuck. Yeah, I'm I'm a consultant, you, you so it depends. Squarely in the middle. <laughs> I really I really like both. So, <laughs> oh, funny how uh, well, consultants and SaaS people are kind of similar in that regard. And well, I I, I well disclaimer: I currently work for MongoDB, but that is also my opinion, as well as the company's opinion that MongoDB is awesome. But no uh, just as a disclaimer, you know, my uh, my anything I say on the show doesn't reflect my employer's opinions necessarily, but also I'm not necessarily speaking on behalf of MongoDB here. Just wanted to get that out there. Yeah, I, th- I think that's important because I, while I really appreciate your enthusiasm for Mongo and I have enthusiasm for Mongo, I think we need to explore the the reasons for the choices around that and to um, uh, recognize uh, certain of the challenges that you face when using it in certain kinds of more traditional application environments. Um, so it, you know, I know this is all, let's, let's all get enthusiastic about the, beam, the, the mean stack because that's worth doing, but losing our heads about it, <laughs> maybe we don't want to do that. Yeah. I do have to say though, that having like, the mean stack, for example, having something where it's, look, here is a stack that we know works, and here are some practices that you can use that work well with it, and, you know, here are some frameworks that, you know, hang together nicely. There, There is definitely some advantage to that, because there are a lot of people out there then using the same tools for the same things, and the entire stack benefits. Yeah, absolutely. The more people use it, the more sort of... You know, the more sort of tools are built around it and the more useful it becomes. It's one of the interesting things that, well, people see in, well, the, coming back to the database space in that, well, you can, uh, you can sit around and argue that, uh, that CouchDB or MySQL or, uh, or Cassandra are better for certain purposes than MongoDB and you might actually be 100% correct. But the big advantage of MongoDB, at least I feel, in addition to the fact that, you know, we are, it's a very, very simple product to use, is that there is a huge community around it. And basically, we actually have engineers that are pretty much, or we have support rotations where people spend their time going around answering Stack Overflow questions. So the community is there, the support is there, the tools are there. Yeah. And I think that that makes things a lot better. And I hope to sort of see that the sort of same community building up around the meat stack. So yeah, I, I agree I, with that. Go ahead, Joe. I think an interesting thing to consider about talking about technology choices in general is how much of it is we, we pretend like we're making the objective best decision, but it's really hard to have perfect information about both what your problem is actually going to be 
and what the technology is actually going to do when fit into your problem. So a ton of our talk about like how good things are is, is kind of rationalization is backed by emotional things. And I think there's this logo about Node, right? Like JavaScript is fun and so Node is fun. That's, that's a great justification to use Node. And MongoDB, it's also really easy to get started with and just get stuff up and running with. So like that's a great reason to pick using it because it feels good. And if you run into technical problems later on, then that's a different issue. But but it's hard. No one has perfect information about the world when they decide what they're going to use. So using what you, you like and what's enjoyable sort of, is good. You could think of some pretty objective advantages. But again, you can't have perfect information. But there are certain things like, oh, if I'm building a web application, at some point I'm going to have to introduce some complex concurrency. I'm going to have to have, you know, say... I'm going to have to do a, you know, CSV dump of my data at 12 p.m. every day so the analytics guy can sit around and play with it. Or I might need to do, like, say, n concurrent requests to Facebook to get some, uh, to get to, I don't know, to dereference some data pointers or something to that effect and get some location information. And if you want to do that, that's really where Node.js shines where you can sort of come in and just do this very sophisticated concurrency in an event-driven format. And sort of event-driven code really makes a lot more sense to me in terms of how the concurrency is managed, simply because you don't have to worry about being interrupted at any given time. You don't have to worry about guarding things with blocks. So makes thing makes that sort of task of building out sophisticated and con- uh, sophisticated concurrent programs a lot simpler. And again, that's one of the things that I see the mean stack really sort of, uh, really having an advantage over more older and more developed web development stacks, like say, you know, a full Ruby on Rails stack or something to that effect. So that's that interesting. Just the concurrency is stupidly easy. That's interesting, Valeri. You know, I'd say most people jump over to mean thinking, hey, you know, either I'm doing Rails, or, or I'm doing something else, and I want to try something that's a little bit more, um, oh, I don't know, on the edge, maybe. And so they jump over to mean, but they're probably not thinking of it from a concurrency standpoint. You know, like most apps aren't really like other, other than scalability wise for concurrency. You're not thinking about, oh, I need to be doing uh, something crazy concurrency wise. So you're not necessarily driven over to that stack because of that. Would you agree with that? I would agree with you there. It's not something that people think about when they first get started. It's not something that I thought about when I first started building my first mean stack application. It wasn't exactly, you know, high on my list of priorities. Uh, but sort of as the applications evolved, I sort of, I started to see, oh, you know, it would be great if I could do this, that, and the other thing. You know, always just adding one more thing. Maybe things like, oh, I want to be able to notify the administrator every time something happens, but I don't want to block the, the, or I don't want to slow down my response times for that. So I just want to sort of handle that like asynchronously after I've returned everything to the user already. And where this really sort of clicked for me as like MeanStack as just the, uh, sort of a tool for making a very concurrent web server came from when me and my roommate actually started doing Bitcoin arbitrage. My uh, my roommate came to me in March and just told me, oh, there are all these Bitcoin exchanges and the prices are just so wildly different that we can, you know, we can, the math works out where 
a few times a day, we can execute some trades and make some decent money. And so we, I sat down to do that, and I just wondered how could I, how could I do this? Oh, hey, why don't I just use Node? Node has Node is really good concurrency, right? And then basically, you know, within an hour, I'd gone from nothing to basically just you know throwing out live trades, mostly because oh, I could listen to Socket IO stream here, I could ping a REST API there. That all comes together seamlessly. And oh, by the way, I have a web server running on top of it, so powered by Express, so I can serve up, you know, whatever, uh, whatever price analytics and history of trades and all these things right from my browser. And as somebody who had just left their job at a high-frequency trading firm, this just blew my mind because, I mean, I had just come from a job where basically we had huge teams of people getting paid exorbitant salaries to do pretty much that. Now, I, I want to ask, I'm going to redirect just a little bit here. I'm pretty familiar with uh, what MongoDB is about, what Angular is about, and what Node is about. I don't think we've talked a whole lot about Express. Can can you talk about what that gives you on top of Node? I would say that the biggest advantage of Express is, again, it's a product that gets out of your way and lets you sort of access Node, but it gives you on top of Node a very simple uh, REST or framework for building up a RESTful API for, on Node.js. So a basic uh, a node server without Express would make things a little bit more difficult where you would have to sort of define your routes. You'd have to be able to go in and pull, uh, pull various things from HTTP headers, take care of parsing that. Whereas Express gives you a nice little framework for sort of thinking about things in a, uh, in sort of a modern MVC web framework fashion. The framework is based on Sinatra, which is a Rails competitor, uh, a basically a Ruby MVC, server MVC framework. Well, kind of. Sinatra is not really MVC, but it is a very oh. lightweight uh, way of managing uh, web applications. And, and you can True. definitely add the uh, the M and the or the the model component to it. True. The M is the M is explicitly missing from Express. Yes, you're you're right. But I mean, the M you kind of can add on yourself. It's relatively simple. Yep. I the the big advantage is it gives you sort of uh, the framework for writing a function that takes in an HTTP request and outputting an HTTP response. Yep. Without having to necessarily deal with the ugliness of setting up all of the correct headers, computing the response length, various things like that. So we talked a little bit about why, if you're using Node, Express is a good decision. We talked about why um, Mongo could be a good decision. Did we talk about why Node is a good fit, or why Mongo is a good fit for Node, vice versa? I mean, one thing that comes to my mind is that the document is, at least for the most part, very comparable to a JSON object. And so you can take an object, probably less any functions you have on there, and put it into Mongo fairly straightforwardly. Yeah, that is, again, the first advantage that I would think of with uh, with Mongo and Node is that, well, it you, know, you have a JavaScript object, you want to save it into a database, okay, it's saved as is. You pull up a Mongo shell, you run a query, you get back pretty much the exact same object you saved, Maybe uh, if you hadn't added an ID field, it will add an ID field for you. Or it being either the well, it being the Node.js MongoDB driver. 
Okay, one other thing that I that comes to mind is the fact that the MongoDB console and any I don't I can't remember what Mongo calls them, but they're basically stored procedures are all written in JavaScript as well. And so you know, the shell helpers. Yeah, well, it's one of the ways we call the query language too. I mean, yeah, yeah, the query language is basically JavaScript, but also you can actually tell it to uh, do like map reduce functions inside of Mongo to manage some of the data that way. I've I've done that with analytics where you basically you know log every instance and then it goes in and it actually distills it down so that you get reporting and things like that in MongoDB and the database engine is actually managing that logic in JavaScript. Yeah, you can always eval JavaScript and you can most queries let you pass in arbitrary JavaScript as an expression that'll get evaluated. It can Although, be a lot uh, slower but putting on my MongoDB hat we don't recommend you you do server eval Oh yeah, or you send eval in your queries. You can do it, but we recommend that you don't. And probably ninety nine point nine nine percent of the time, you don't have to. And yeah, if unless you really, really know what you're doing, the answer is no. Don't use it. Yeah, I think I've done it once in a couple of years, and it was just exploring on the command line. We don't. Mm-hmm. You don't want to expose your server to cross site scripting. I don't yeah. know. So, so, so of, stepping yeah, one back, one of the a funny bit. things that you end up with when you're in the SaaS space is the realization that if you uh, if you include a feature, somebody will find every possible way there is to use it incorrectly. So, yeah, eval ends up being one of those things where people just try to try to use it and get get shot in the uh, get shot in the foot. One of the things I think we're sort of circling around when we're trying to to identify the value of the mean stack. Uh, at least for me, is that it? I think we have a vision of a, a particular kind of application, probably something that would be called a single-page application uh, delivered over the web. And what we what's running through our thoughts is that we get to use JavaScript from one end to the other. And I think that that's what's really attractive uh, for me, anyway, about this stack as I try and uh, think about how I would put it to use even in the application space that I'm most familiar with, which is business or enterprise applications rather than consumer-facing applications. Uh, I'm wondering if that resonates with you guys or whether um, uh, I'm just smoking something different. No, I totally agree. I was just thinking some people, there are lots of visceral reactions to Node and Mongo, and for some people, that phrase "use JavaScript from one end to the other" just probably like made their heads explode with rage. Yeah, but for some right people, now. I don't know. I enjoy it. I think JavaScript is fun. Not only that, Jameson, but uh, what is the payoff for getting to put a single, you know, getting a probably a vast book of your developers if you're doing mean stack at your shop, only working in one language across the board? What's the payoff there? Well, it's not sharing code because that mm. is a pipe dream. But yeah. oh, there is a lower barrier to entry in terms of understanding the code base. You don't necessarily have to look for somebody who can be like, oh yeah, of course I know Go and C and Ruby and uh, all these you know, all these other things in order to be able to balance your code base. And especially if you're a small company where you only have maybe a handful of people, you would like it to bring on people who can sort of understand everything front to back. And so that's one of the advantages, I guess, from a business perspective. Yeah. Do you think? I I, I want to disagree slightly. In, I mean, yeah, you know, Ruby isn't JavaScript and Go isn't JavaScript, but 
I mean, we've been building apps with a Java or C Sharp or Ruby or whatever back end and a JavaScript front end for years and years. And I mean, sure, you know, people tend to know the nuances of their server side language much better than they know JavaScript in the browser. And, and I can see that as an advantage. But at the same time, I mean, we have large, uh, well-written enterprise applications or even well-written small applications where somebody wrote the back end in one language, the front end in another language, and they work fine. They do work fine, but you still have impedance mismatches at the at the connecting points. And that's one of the things that really pops out at me whenever I work. I mean, I work in all these different mm -hmm. stacks, right? But the thing that pops out at me when I work in what we're calling the mean stack, and with all of its attendant tools, grunt and so forth, is how at the points at which the different layers meet and the tiers meet, you're not translating from one representation to another well, you are, but you know what I mean? You're not changing, you're not having a technology transfer. So you're not dealing from, say, a static type, like, uh, you know, the way the customer is structured in, in, in a statically type language on the back end and then saying, well, now I got to turn that into JSON and then I got to rehydrate that back on my client as something else. And it just, it's, um, those things kind of go away. And the other thing that really pops out at you is that the cycle, the development cycle, you iterate completely around that, like from spinning up the, the back end to developing on the front end and moving back and forth. It's just, it's, it feels comparatively frictionless. And that just isn't true when I've got a different um, technology that I have to spin up in the back end. I, I, I want to disagree with one point and then agree with another. And, and really the point that I want to disagree with is that most, you know, JSON to JSON to whatever, most languages have a pretty seamless process for importing JSON and turning it into whatever you need to. And you actually have to do that with JavaScript anyway if you want to do any kind of inheritance or add any functionality to the JSON uh, in order to make it a functional object. But the, the thing I want to agree with you on is that the, the context switching that you have to do is mitigated somewhat. I mean, you can have the same style guide for the front end and back end. You can use the same processes. For the most part, you can use the same tools. Yeah, you can't share code, but, uh, you know, you have all of those other things going for you. So you don't have to change environments. You don't have to change the mindset on the tools. You don't have to, to, uh, you know, handle as many of the differences between the two languages and the way that their virtual machines work. But at the same time, you do have to be able to keep in mind that, you know, Node.js is not the same as the engine that's running in the browser. And there are going to be some mismatches that happen there. It's just that the mismatches aren't at the, the linguistic and syntactical level. Well, I'm, well, I'm really... going to make a quick, uh, quick disagreement there with the statement about uh, code sharing. I mean, yeah, for the most part, code sharing is not going to happen. But there are sort of a couple of cases where it actually can be advantageous, which is, uh, number one, enums. Again, if you could have a common enum on the, on the client and on the server and not have to sort of deal with keeping the two in sync or transferring them with proto buffs or something to that effect. Um, and number two is, uh, is sort of the testing paradigm and sort of one of the things that I've really found very advantageous is sort of having the, having my tests written in the same language in the same way. I have, you know, Karma running my, uh, running my client side JavaScript tests in, uh, in Jasmine. And I have, uh, and I just run Jasmine on my server side tests as well. 
I'll, I'll throw another one into the pot, which is that validation logic. Obviously, your final validation logic needs to be on the server, but it's a very helpful use to user experience when you can project that same validation logic onto the client. And if you have, you know, simple things like the order date has to be before the, the, um, uh, ship date and stuff like that. These little things that go on and it's really nice to be able to move some of these rules around or, uh, or have them execute in both sides. So I'm not minimizing the differences on the two sides. What I'm saying is that the points where they come together, they come together in a much smoother fashion. For, for, I mean, you're dealing with, um, you know, structural types, uh, at, at those boundaries rather than, and types that you can, that you can monkey punch and all of these things make it make it just easier to move back and forth as a developer when you're trying to to write an application on both sides the client and the server at least in my experience right i, I do want to ask a question about that when you are sharing like the validation code or you know some of the other behavior behavioral things that are more or less the same back end front end do you use the same javascript files and just expose them to the to the the website or do you actually uh, duplicate the code in one way or another? I would prefer to factor it so that I can have... Uh, there'll be some that's purely server-side, but uh, mm-hmm. but I would factor it in such a way that I, w- I... that I, I mean, that's the value is that I would be able to right. literally reuse the code. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that's everything. I really think mm-hmm. that there's much more involved here in the common... Cu- there's kind of a common JavaScript culture. There's a common tool set. There's a common... Yeah. Like like w- w- Valerie was talking about with the testing. You know, when all of these things are all shared and all of the programmers on the application are speaking in the same way, working with the same tools and so forth and could move and can be repositioned to contribute significantly at any place up and down, I think that's that's a real positive. Yeah, I can definitely see that, and I identify with the opposite. I worked at a company that had a Ruby on Rails backend and a Flash frontend, and you know the 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 two really didn't mix. and And it would have been nice to be able to, you know, have the frontend guys speaking the same language as the backend guys. And there's there's a definite advantage there. Yeah, that's true. I think the industry's seen some pretty interesting things. You know, in 2000, everybody was a server developer doing a little bit of web stuff. Right in 2012, I think we saw a huge rise of just front-end developers. Certainly, that's not anywhere near the majority, but guys who were just working in JavaScript probably hit a big, certainly a bigger peak than they've ever hit before for a number of jobs like that. And now we're getting back to where we can say, well, they can be hardcore front-end and still go into the back-end because they're using the same language. How about this other factor too, which is that there's an enormous amount, there's a, there's sort of an explosion of open source libraries solving this problem, that problem, a little problem here and there in the JavaScript space that people are, you know, busily grabbing and, and forking and redoing. And, and there just seems like if you, if you want something that you don't have, you can go out there and search for it and plug it in. And, and I, I just didn't find that that was as easy to do or as common in the C-sharp or Java space. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that comes down to, well, at least in the Node space, that comes down to the advantages of the Node Package Manager, NPM, which is one of the things that makes the main stack really shine, in my opinion, is the sort of 50,000 plus, well, now as of a couple months ago, it's over 50,000 uh, NPM packages, which, again, NPM has its own problems, 
but the things that they do right are things like all I have to do to uh, to get started with using a repo, if it's a well-written repository, is I clone it off of Git, I go in, I run npm install to install all of the dependencies, I run npm test to test it, and now I can go in and start tweaking it. I don't have to go in and start finagling with my uh, with my you know binary path. I don't have to uh, I don't have to really go around and set up a build proper build tools or set up a different source control tool that I don't necessarily use, like having to install Go from source via Mercurial, which is a pain. Um, that's it's a, it's a huge advantage to be able to sort of lower a barrier to entry from sort of I don't know anything about this repo to I've I've taken it down I've I've installed everything I need to install and I've run all of its tests with basically three lines of code it's it's or three lines at your favorite command line it's pretty damn cool. So I want to get into another holy war that I see periodically and that is is you picked. Angular over, say, Ember, Knockout, or, you know, any of the other, you know, dozen or so popular frameworks out there. W- was there a reason besides the acronym that you did that? <laughs> well, my usage of Angular goes back a very, very long time, all the way back to, uh, to 2010, late 2010, when, uh, basically Angular was written by my mentor when I was an intern at Google in 2009, a guy by the name of Mishko Hevery. If you have not read his blog and you're a JavaScript engineer, I highly cannot, I just cannot recommend it enough. The guy is a JavaScript genius and he definitely is one of the people who sort of taught me how to write JavaScript well. There's a lot of bad JavaScript out there. I'm very much guilty of writing a fairly significant amount of bad JavaScript in my lifetime, but Mishko did a great job of sort of teaching me the correct way of doing things. And well, from there, when I got started with Angular, I had come from basically just using jQuery, and, well, that wasn't quite cutting it in my use case. So I got started using Angular very, very early, sort of did some uh, personal bug fixes while I, while I was getting started. So I'm very, very familiar with Angular, and it's sort of the way that I think about things. And at, in all the time that I've used it, I have not really seen a seen the necessity to move off of it. I've tried Ember, I've tried Knockout, and they haven't sort of upped the bar enough from Angular for me to uh, to move off to something else. I don't necessarily have any real pain points with Angular when I'm using it. It's just a library that does pretty much everything that I have ever wanted to do on the UI side, and then gives me suggestions for what I could do, and things that I hadn't thought of. So it's it's extraordinary. And I have a lot of experience with it, and that's sort of why I put it in, put it into the acronym. Well, I have used the uh, the others, and I actually have pretty high res- regard for not knockout standing on the own. I think of of Durandal as being an equivalent because Durand, you know, it's more than just data binding, and knockout is about data binding. So, you know, when I look across the choices that you have for a presentation framework, I think that they're, they, they, the others are worthy. But the thing that I I think people are really finding attractive about Angular is that it doesn't lean on observability. 
in order to know what's going on when it's doing its data binding. I think that's the, the dis- really distinguishing feature as a developer. And the consequence of that, you may say, well, what the heck does that mean? The, cons- the consequence is that when I get that object from Mongo coming over, uh, I don't have to transform it by making each of its properties observable in order to make it bind. And that just taking that whole business out of the equation makes it a much easier introduction to um, to wedding your presentation fa- uh, uh, framework to whatever's going on in the back end. It just seems like the writing of the code is is less. You don't you get you don't get trapped into uh, morphing the JSON coming in in order to make it uh, presentable. And that and taking that out is the biggest thing. Uh, and that's, I think that's one of the reasons that Angular really, uh, won. Now, it just so happens that it's also beautifully written, as you say, Valerie. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it has the wonderful testability features and it has the built-in dependency injection and, and, you know, all of these features that as a longtime client developer in technologies like Silverlight and C Sharp, that I, I would expect when I'm trying to build a single page application that is heavy on in client side execution. And they're all built right in and, and they drop out of the box. So Angular is a great choice. It's not the only choice, but it's a great choice and I think it fits right in. <laughs> I guess the question that we need to ask is will it bind? But, <laughs> <laughs> oh no, that's, nice. that's actually another very excellent point about how and something that I'd like to harp on a little bit more where the fact that you can basically just take an object immediately from your JSON immediately from your server and you don't need any extra work to glue that to your user interface is extraordinary. And one of probably one of the biggest advantages that I've had is that again as somebody who's worked for relatively small companies for much of my career I have seen that basically whenever I have to interface with a designer, I want the designer to sort of have as much autonomy as humanly possible. I don't want to have to go in and micromanage and tweak their jQuery or something to that effect. So now with, uh, with the bead stack, pretty much all I do is I write a, uh, I write a, you know, dollar HTTP.get or put in order to get back some JSON data. I populate a, I assign that value to some object in a scope. And then my designer can basically just go in and without having to write any JavaScript on their own because, well, tragically, there may be designers out there that write good JavaScript, but I have not worked with them. So in my experience, yeah, I don't want my designers writing actual JavaScript. So this gives them the ability to just go into the HTML, not have to even bother thinking about JavaScript. They just go in and say, okay... I want this particular variable, like I want the user's name to appear here, and I want them to be able to change their name in this input field and have that automatically propagate all across the UI without having to do any extra work. Yeah, there are definitely some nice things about Angular. I, I've played with Ember and Angular, and I, I tend to lean more toward Angular myself. Um, I have one more question, and that is, and this is something that I hear about um, most technologies that are not PHP. And that is, is that the, the hosting story for PHP is really simple. It's, it's usually installed just about anywhere you want to host on share host, shared hosting on most servers. Um, you know, all you have to do is, uh, put your PHP app up somewhere and then point Apache or Nginx at it and it just kind of works. Do you see mean kind of becoming mainstream enough to get to that point as well? I know that there are, and, and I guess this is a question more along the lines of, 
note or maybe express. But uh, you know, uh, is there is there a, a simple hosting story for for mean or node? Oh, uh, can I? I'll take this question first because, well, first of all. As somebody who has had experience dealing with Apache, you make it seem like dealing with Apache is very simple. And I, I, I did mean, kind of. I've heard. Uh, I've heard of people who, you know, their full time job is managing Apache config files. It's it's not an easy thing to do. the The advantages with uh, with running basically mean or everything on top of Node is essentially all you have to do is install Node. That's that's it. You install Node. You run your tests and then you basically just run a node process pointed to like your main file. And there you go. You have a, you have a web server. You don't necessarily need Apache or Nginx or any of these other things. It and makes it's got- it considerably simpler. And as a matter of fact, actually, uh, if you all have heard of DigitalOcean, which is a, uh, which is sort of an EC2 competitor that Gives you SSDs and sort of high, uh, high performance hard drives on your instances. They actually have a, now have a, uh, basically an instance that comes pre-packaged with Mongo and Node in sort of like a mean stack setup, which is, you know, very cool. It takes you from having to, oh, saves you the effort of having to actually do thing, go through all the effort of having to go sudo apt get install Node and well, saves you one line at the command line, which is great, I guess. But yeah, that's, I think that's one of the advantages of the hosting setup is it's already very easy just if you're on an Ubuntu box or a Mac box or even a Windows box, it should work. And even if, and if you want to make that even easier, go to DigitalOcean and spawn up an instance with them already installed. Yeah, yeah. DigitalOcean is awesome. I love those guys. And all the cloud providers have it, make it easy. So, you know, why spend it? Why waste time with that if you just, if you need a server, just pop it up there? Or I, I guess the answer to that is if you've got an internal application, but, but, um, uh, it's, it's pretty easy in the cloud and it's pretty easy on your box. So one, one other question I have then is if you deploy more than one mean application to the same server, do you need something like, um, Nginx or Apache then to, kind of proxy that and say this domain goes to this app and this domain goes to the other app? Or is there a way to work around that? Um, to the best of my knowledge, I don't have a good answer to how to do that. You might need Apache and Nginx. Again, you can make them listen to the, uh, you can make them listen to different ports. But I mean, Ward, feel free to chime in. I don't have a, I don't have a good answer beyond that. No, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I, I don't know how it differs from, uh, a, other situations, uh, you spin up a different endpoint, you spin up yeah. another, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's not that different. I just didn't know if, uh, Express or Node gave you that kind of an option where you could configure it and say, you know, I'm running two applications on the same VM or something like that. I would imagine it is in some way possible, but I have never actually done it, so I can't actually say. Yeah, I think the common practice is, yeah, to set up Nginx or something and then just tell it to, to proxy back to another port, and so effectively it's just routing based on domain name. Again, that also brings me back to another interesting point about the mean stack and sort of one of the paradigm shifts that I've seen in my coding in that particular realm is 
with other uh, with other web frameworks I've used, I've had an, often a tendency to basically things start spilling off into multiple processes pretty uh, pretty quickly. You start having to you know set up prod jobs, and God, I hate setting up prod jobs. They're such a pain. Um, <laughs> they I uh, have like a you know I have like a different process doing nginx. I have to worry about my memcached, all these other all these other processes. And with with uh, with the mead stack, I've seen that oh I can basically why why would I use a cron job when I can sort of schedule things internally in my server? Just say okay, this should run at six p.m. Mm-hmm. That makes life an awful lot easier. A lot of these things sort of start moving into the server. You know, having to set up Apache or have an Apache instance running and having to set up things like mod, uh, mod PHP or mod Pyot, all of those tools so that Apache doesn't spawn up a new process for each and every single request. All of these different things sort of just move into your one server. In even memcached, again, you don't necessarily have to, or you often, you don't necessarily even have to use memcached with MongoDB because MongoDB is very, very good about using as much available memory as is humanly possible. For that is such a positive way. Memory. Such a positive way to spin that. <laughs> well, what do you mean? Oh, I mean, it uses all your memory, right? Like, that could be a bad thing or a good thing. <laughs> well, I mean, if you have extra memory, well, then, you've, then you're not using all of your available memory. But, I mean, sure. I think that's part of the point of having memory in the first place is you want to use it in theory. So, um, and I guess that is, again, that is something that people have criticized MongoDB for. And, you know, they have their beef with that is basically just, yeah, it, it can use a lot of memory. And if there is available memory and your, uh, and all of your data doesn't fit into memory, it will still try to use all available memory. But that's mostly because, well, I mean, you want your data to be in memory because you don't want to read from the hard drive pretty much ever because hard drives are slow, especially, well, if you have a web application, the the hard drive often ends up being a bottleneck if you're doing things right uh, and still hitting the hard drive. So what's the, you want to make sure, just never read from the hard drive. And that's one of that's the positive spin on MongoDB's memory usage. So yeah. we've talked a lot about all the strengths of this stack. Are there any gotchas or pitfalls or things to watch out for? Or places no. that you should fit. Stack? <laughs> One of the things that spooks me is, and it's, it's absolutely fundamental to JavaScript, is lack of memory manage, I mean, developer control over memory management. You just have no idea where things stand and whether you're running out, what, what to do. And that, that always scares me a little bit. Do you guys have a good strategy for that? Restart Crickets. your servers periodically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, what are you gonna? You know, you know, I mean, you can't, you can't, you can't uh, say, "Hey, I will. I'd like to start a garbage collection right now, please." This would be a good time for that. You can't. You, you got no visibility. You can't do anything there. And there's no interest in the JavaScript world. You know, the ECMAScript people, as far as I know, to to address that. And so, as a as a yeah, you know, I, I, I worry about this gradual accumulation of stuff and then, uh, suddenly it just lights up one day and says it's over. Uh, I guess we should all write our code such that it's easy to just not worry about it and let it restart, but that bothers there, me. There are some incredible blog posts about people debugging memory leaks in Node and, and it's, it's intense. They're all on, um, the smart OS and, and using like dtrace and generating all these flame graphs and stuff, but they have really specialized tools and it can be kind of painful. Yeah, so that that is one issue. Is this a problem that frequently occurs? I mean, 
It seems like I mean, most, not more most... than any other garbage collected language, but in every garbage collected language, you can have memory leaks. So yeah. it happens sometimes. Well, in, in most garbage collected languages that I've seen, you can trigger your own GC. But uh, yeah, it, I mean, if it's a really frequent problem, then I, I, you know, I can, I can see people being concerned, but if it's something that most people aren't really going to run into, then I don't well, know. And let's be clear, gar- uh, memory leaks were invented by non-garbage collected languages. Certainly not unique. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but for the, so yeah. for the stack, it's really not necessarily an issue because of the stack, right? It's really that, isn't that mostly node? Like MongoDB doesn't have garbage or memory issues. When it comes to the browser, if you're doing JavaScript in the browser, Angular's no more or no better or worse than anybody else at memory allocation, right? So, it really comes down to just Node when it comes to just managing your memory. Well, the other thing is, is that if you if you create a memory problem on the browser, it's those people that have you know the the millions of records or whatever that you're uh, displaying, um, and there are ways to mitigate that. But on the server, if you if you crash the server that people are connecting to, you know you're going to affect a bunch of people all at once. Right, which, is why, which which is why you're you're looking at you know servers that are designed to fail. I mean, it's it's a little bit like um, the argument against ESDs, right? You know, they can they go down more than than Rust does, spinning Rust does. But the answer to that is just have a lot of them and design for failure. And I think that's pretty much what people do on both ends. I th- I, I you know I I it's just that it feels. It feels uncomfortable, and this is a job. Let's be clear; it's not an Angular problem. This is a JavaScript problem. This is a fundamental of JavaScript, and it's just it, the way it, it impacts you isn't just that you get it out of memory exception. A world of garbage collection requires you to have about twice as much free space as you're actually using, and so as you begin to chew into it, the performance just suddenly starts dying, and you don't know why, and you have no visibility in what's going wrong. So this is one of the areas in which just programming in JavaScript is harder than. And programming in some of the other environments, and, and if we were, we, we should be honest about that. So there is an option to expose the garbage collector in Node. I was just googling this because I thought I've heard of it. I'm pretty sure this is mostly for testing, though. I don't think you want to do this in production. But we're not talking about stuff that wouldn't be picked up by the garbage collector, anyways. We're talking about leaks, so running the garbage collector wouldn't won't find your leaks, so you're still not going to get that memory back, right? Yeah, often it isn't just about leaks. It, it, I mean, it may not necessarily be a leak. It's maybe that you've yeah, accidentally you accumulated have. too much stuff and you don't know that you've got too much stuff unless you have some other metric on it. But you have no idea about which environment you're in, how much memory you got. So you don't know how much you have to play with, uh, if you want to make decisions about, say, flushing a cache or something like that. Uh, so it isn't just about memory leaks. Yeah. And if we're talking about, uh, weaknesses, I think there's another potential weakness that's also uh, something that we mentioned as strength earlier on, and that is if you're deal- dealing with just one language, what you might be looking for is developers that need to know JavaScript really well, which still even in this day and age can be hard to find. A lot harder a lot harder than people think it is. Yeah, but at the same time, I mean, I've been a hiring manager and hired people that didn't know the technology we were working in, and they were smart enough and had enough experience and, and skill to pick it up and so but do you but think it, there's a do you think there's potentially an issue with uh, the market getting flooded with people who've done client-side development that want to move to the server but just have no idea how to code on the server who knows i don't think they know how to code on code on the client 
<laughs> that, no, no, I mean seriously. What you did is a web as a front end developer. Historically, you had very few JavaScript responsibilities. You had no need to think about your JavaScript lasting for very long because the uh, or worry about polluting the global space because you were just going to refresh anyway. Uh, learning to program in this other way, in which you're going to have a client that lives for a long period of time. Uh, and that's what Angular is, uh, is useful for, right? We're not talking about using it to get a few nice animation effects. We're talking about building a client that lives for a long, the session is there for a long time. And I don't think there are a lot of front-end developers who have had experience building that kind of a, a client-side JavaScript app. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. So I want to ask a question. If, you, if you've got people out there that are very interested in Beanstack and want to learn it, where do you think is the best place for people like that to go? Well, the resources out there are still somewhat limited. I think that it's slowly but surely improving. Right now, I, the things that come off, well, off the top of my head would be, uh, mean.io, which is a wonderful, uh, which is sort of a wonderful mean stack skeleton and other tools maintained around the mean stack by some guys in Israel, I think it is. There's also my blog, shameless plug, thecodebarbarian.com. I have a few posts about the mean stack and sort of why it's useful, how you can get started, how you can build a very simple uh, to-do list application with it, and a few simple use cases like uh, building an online store where you want to change between viewing prices in different currencies. Those are the things that come to mind right now. I uh, I would love to hear some other people's opinions. If you want, if you want to learn about Angular JS in particular, there are uh, you can. Oh, you can look it up on Google. Egghead.io also has a some excellent tutorials that I've heard are truly wonderful. Um, that's pretty much all that I can think of off the top of my head right now. I, I still maintain that they should have uh, registered Mean.io in Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> I like the uh, Mean.io. I just completed my course on Mean development for Pluralsight. So I want to, I definitely want to recommend that one as well for learning mean. But when I was preparing for that, I went through and tried to find all the places where people were giving fundamentals of how to learn mean just to get, you know, ideas for what other people were using to teach people mean. And other than mean.io, I really didn't find much in the way. So definitely here's a shameless plug for my plural site course on mean development and introduction to it. Well, if it's as good as your other courses, Joe, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Hey, thanks, Ford. <laughs> Thank you. But, uh, I, I do think that you, you know, the A is where you're going to spend most of the time anyway. And there's lots of good stuff on being a good Angular developer. Yeah, the, the True. Mongo stuff, their docs are pretty good. And they send out, you can subscribe to some. Yeah. News there's also a MongoDB like, University, which is another thing that I forgot to mention. They have numerous courses, including, uh, so-called M101JS which is basically MongoDB with an emphasis on Node.js development with MongoDB, sort of like a uh, roughly 40-hour uh, video, uh, video courses and, uh, and nice little tests that will give you sort of a, a sort of exhaustive knowledge of the very fundamental stuff with MongoDB with a little focus on the side of sort of how you interface with MongoDB using Node. And I think learning MongoDB, especially like from scratch, is actually really straightforward. My one complaint is I wish it was just a little bit easier or less picky about where you configured your data to be. What do you mean? Well, I wish it would like 
kind of make some smart choices if I hadn't adequately pointed it at the right place for data to go. It would just say, all right, well, I'm going to put your data here because you haven't really told me. Oh, you about when you have to create the directory for it to store the... Yeah, like when you if first the directory it up, doesn't exist, it sure, won't. Sure, sure. It'll refuse to start up. Yeah, yeah, it'd be nice if it did or, or warned you and it gave you something really meaningful and a nice option just started up for you. But other than that, I think that Mongo is awesome to pick up and get started with just from scratch. Absolutely. As long as we're doing shameless plugs, we have a um, a B-mean sample in our portfolio of samples for Breeze. If um, if you want to see how uh, how that can work end to end, also. Yeah, I think that'd be in- interesting. I think we've talked about Breeze before, but Ward to kind of at least highlight what is the what does B add to B-mean? Well, uh, it, when you you know. Valerie was talking earlier about what, you know, on a client, hey, all you do is you just make an Ajax call, you know, with $HTTP and the world is your oyster. And the Breeze premise is that maybe there's more involved if you have a rich object with capabilities that is on your client. Maybe there's some, there are some other concerns that you may want to deal with there. So, uh, such as, um, uh, validation and caching and dealing with, um, a self-assembling object graph. So, that I don't like common thing with, with even in in you know with with Mongo is you'll pull down a document, but not everything you'll need will be in that document or should be in there. Eventually, you're just going to have some kind of reference to something that's sitting someplace else. Otherwise, the document gets ridiculously large. So. Uh, something like, say, all the information you would want to know about a product in an order of a line item. So uh, how do you connect those dots on the client side if you want to, if you've got a collection of uh, product information or colors or statuses and stuff like that? Breeze can reassemble those so that you have the full object graph, but your your communications over the wire can be focused on just the parts of uh, the document that you need. So there's stuff like that, and we have a query language we're actually able to use on the client so that the client can sort of customize what kinds of... The, the client developer can make decisions about what queries they want to make, and when those queries arrive, we translate those into Mongo uh, Mongo queries for you. And, so, and from the client side, it kind of looks, if you know Link, it kind of looks Link-like. So I'll uh, agree with you here that Breeze has an awesome uh, purpose. When we were doing some major work over at Domo and switching over to Angular, one of the things we wanted to figure out was how we are going to handle our models on the client side because we had some really rich models that we'd written in Backbone. And I spent a lot of time looking through all the options for modeling, and everything else was extremely bare bones. I mean, I went so far as to actually hook up uh, Backbone's Backbone.model uh, against Angular, which is really actually quite straightforward, surprisingly, and easy to use and has a lot of benefits. But Breeze is the only thing that really gave you a rich model. And when we were doing something very serious, because we had 100,000 lines of JavaScript we were going to be porting over to Angular, we, we knew that we needed something serious on, on, the, cl- on the client side for modeling. So it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. All right. Well, we're, uh, we've already been talking for an hour and five um, and we usually get to the picks about 20 minutes ago. Um, are there any other things that we need to talk about with MeanStack to help people understand uh, how best to use it or maybe when to consider other options? Give me another three hours. <laughs> yeah, it, seem, it seems like a terrific way to go. Is, and, and so, yeah, go check it out. But are there, are there any gotchas that people run into or, or things that 
people find difficult, or is it is it really just as easy as installing uh, Node.js and uh, MongoDB and then um, hooking things up with Express.js and and a lot of the ways or a lot of the difficulties come from the fact that one, I absolutely love JavaScript. I think it's one of the best languages in existence. Maybe a controversial statement, but I think JavaScript is extremely elegant. But with great power comes great responsibility. JavaScript gives you a lot of flexibility and it gives you a lot of flexibility to shoot yourself in the foot and sort of write code that's going to be impossible to test, impossible to maintain. And a lot of the difficulty that I've seen, at least from consulting work, comes from just people have just don't quite have the understanding of how to write effective JavaScript. And number two, the, a lot of the other difficulties come from, again, as was mentioned, is that Angular is a complex library. It's, well, both a library and a framework. It's pretty dogmatic about how you should write things correctly while also still giving you about Three billion ways to do the same thing, and a lot of and a lot of the difficulty comes down to sort of like understanding how Angular should work and how it should be uh, how it should be written. It, it would take too long to go into um, what I think is an important understanding of the difference between NoSQL and SQL databases and why they both have a reason for being and why they both have vulnerabilities. And uh, Mongo doesn't escape from um, the challenges that are faced by no, NoSQL databases. Uh, but it's way, <laughs> it's way <laughs> beyond uh, the scope of this talk. Uh, of our, of our discussion. Uh, so we'll, we could, we could just leave it at that. Uh, um, but you know, I mean, it, it almost sounds like when you do that, that you're sort of like, it's got to be an either or. And I don't mean to imply that or that one is bad because you realize that the, that one has flaws. I don't think that's what I'm saying. Uh, not at all. Otherwise I wouldn't be here talking about mean and talking enthusiastically about it. But I do think that you, you, you really have to be aware of what choices you're making and what consequences you're making when you go that route. Yeah, I, I just want to pile on that a little bit. I'm pretty well convinced that most languages as well as most frameworks are set up to handle, you know, about 80% of the cases that would come their way. They can handle it really without too much trouble. But there's that other 20%, and, you know, sometimes there's a better way. But, you know, give, give it a shot and see, see where it shines and see where it doesn't. All right, well, let's, let's go ahead and uh, wrap up the call. And by wrap up, I guess get into the picks. Jameson, do you want to start us off with the picks? Sure, I just have two. One is, um, I think by the time this goes out, the call for papers might be closed, but if not, you should submit a talk to speak at Mountain West JS. It's a JavaScript conference here in Utah that's coming up in March. It's going to be great. And Did you say the Mountain West JS? Yes, I will post oh, a link. In cool, because I'll definitely put, I'll definitely do a CFP for that. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Yay, payoff! It will be it closed works. by the time this goes out. Well, if it's not submit, if it is closed, then come. It's going to be great fun. The next pick is just a, a soundtrack and a video game. I played this game called Risk of Rain. It's an action roguelike, if that means anything to you. And it's super fun. It's really polished, really well done. And the soundtrack is amazing. So I'm going to post a link to the soundtrack because it's been my my programming soundtrack for a couple of days now. That's right, it. Cool. Joe, what are your picks? Alright, so I think it's fairly obvious that I'm going to mention my course. Right about the time that this episode comes out, my course should, on mean development should be released. I think it's called uh, uh, Developing Applications with Angular and in the Mean Stack. And so it's a great place. It's, all, it's a very introductory level course. It's all about putting the 
four pieces together. Uh, it's not an advanced course by any means, so if you are looking for a place to learn mean, that's definitely a great place to go over on Pluralsight.com. My second pick and my uh, my last pick is going to be the new Zelda game on the 3DS. I picked up a 2DS because it was uh, a little bit cheaper than a 3DS, and if my kids got a hold of it, they wouldn't break the hinges, and uh, got the Zelda game, and it, the Link Between Worlds, and it's like one Game of the Year awards. It's just been really fun. But it is incredibly hard. It reminds me a ton of the original Zelda game. But I'm constantly getting lost and going online to find out what I'm supposed to do next. But I've really enjoyed it. Awesome. All right, I'm going to pick a couple of things. If you listen to the other shows that I do from from this week, I'm picking the same thing on all of them because I just got back and uh, I haven't really had a chance to think of anything. So the first pick, uh, my family uh, went to Disneyland and we had a terrific time. We actually got a house that was like a couple blocks from Disneyland, so we just walked to the park every day, and then we'd walk back when we needed a nap, and it, it was it was terrific. So a uh, lot of fun, and uh, I highly uh, recommend if you're looking for a, a terrific way to spend a few days, then go to Disneyland. The other pick I have halfway back, well, not quite halfway back, from Disneyland to here is Las Vegas, and I was there for New Media Expo. And New Media Expo is the big podcasting, blogging, web TV, YouTube kind of uh, crowd. And it was a ton of fun. And I met a lot of cool people, met a bunch of podcasters that I really admire. So if you're interested in learning how to blog or podcast, or if you have any of those and you're you're looking to kind of uh, take it up a notch, then uh, by all means, you know, go to New Media Expo next year. I, I don't know yet when it's going to be, but it the last two years it's been in January in uh, Las Vegas. And uh, the, the other nice thing about that is that they've set it up so that it, it ends when CES starts. And so uh, I was able to go to some CES press events while I was down there for New Media Expo as well. And so that was a lot of fun. So, uh, yeah, those are my picks. Valeri, what are your picks? Sure. Well, first of all, I would like to, while we're on the subject of shameless plugs, I'd like to link to my blog once again, the uh, thecodebarbarian.com. Um, I'm going to make it a New Year's resolution to write more often. However, I have maybe about 10 or 12 blog posts right now on various topics ranging from the mean stack to nutrition and sort of things uh, and sort of general rules for how to be a better developer. Also, I'd like to pick out one uh, one of my favorite books. Um, it's The Book of Five Rings by Miyamoto Musashi. It's actually a 17th century book on Japanese swordsmanship. But I find it to be a very interesting guide on to how to be proficient at pretty much anything. And especially sort of relevant to JavaScript is, uh, is Musashi's sort of no-nonsense guide to, or no-nonsense mentality of basically mind, body, and spirit aligned towards one purpose stick to your principles and get it done. So I think it's something that's very, uh, that would be an interesting light read for uh, for aspiring JavaScript devs. Awesome. Uh, Ward, what are your picks? All right, I'll, I'll blast through them quickly. First of all, everybody should go to breezejs.com, which is our open source product that we talked about earlier. Uh, the link is there. 
It's too late for you all to go to uh, NGConf, the very first one, and Joe is uh, one of the founders of that conference that's going to be next week. I'm looking forward to that. Maybe there'll be some video. There, uh, Angle Brackets, Dev Intersections in the Spring in Orlando is a great conference. Uh, it's fascinating to see how single-page apps, Angular, and and I suspect uh, we'll be seeing a lot more Node and Mongo are showing up big time in the staid Microsoft.net world, and you can see it happening there. And then on the fun side, um, if you've ever wanted to fall in love with Siri and she sounded like Scarlett Johansson, you'd want to see um, the movie Her, which I think is uh, is a winner and a, and a really poignant, surprising uh, tale of the love between a man and uh, his female computer voice. Nice. Hey, uh, Ward, now might be a good chance, since this episode should be released during day two of NGConf to mention that the conference sessions will actually be streamed live and put up on YouTube. So I don't have links that I can give here in the show notes, but it is, for those who are listening to this, it should be going on right as you listen to it if you got the episode as soon as it's released. Wow, that'll almost be like being there, Ex- <laughs> except it won't because being there is going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> and definitely yeah. taste your food. Y'all need to advertise that more. I I actually did not run into NGConf until well December twentieth of last year, so I haven't. But apparently, oh, I wow. haven't been following the community enough. But either that, or y'all didn't advertise well enough. So I'll make sure to look out <laughs> for it next year. Well, you haven't lived until you've seen Frosty and Geddes do their their show on Angular tied into various um, electronic devices. It is funny. <laughs> oh man, that look that sounds awesome. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I, I don't have words to describe how awesome that sounds. All right. Well, thanks for coming, guys. It's been a terrific conversation. A lot of things that we discussed, and uh, hopefully, we'll get some people to try out Mean and see what it's all about. See how it can help them out. And uh, I guess we'll wrap up the show. We'll catch you all next week.